Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you today, and a special welcome to the folks up in North Durham and Port Perry, and uh, may God bless them as we pray that he will also bless us as we open up his word together. It's always a, a privilege to be here, and just want to thank Dave for that warm introduction. It's always great to see him, and he and Jen are a real blessing here. Amen. Can you give a little bit of a word there? When we think about the gospel... People think about all different sorts of things, right? I mean, people use the gospel of this and the gospel of that. And so we use these words so often that we actually lose the kind of meaning of what the real gospel is. And, and today, the story that, as David mentioned too, this story of the prodigal son is so well known that you might say, heard it, been there, done that. But you know, the story of the prodigal son and the two stories that precede it, as we'll be going to it, really are all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul said this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. And let me add a word there. It's the transforming power of God. Do you want to be different? I can remember when I, at age 17 said to Jesus, I I just can't keep going the way I'm going. I'm not going to end up in a good place. And God spoke to me as he has spoken to so many of you and has said, you know, I have a wonderful gospel for you. And the gospel is transforming. It's change agent in our life. And we need to come to grips with that. And that's what Jesus teaches And in fact, we're going to see today that the gospel is what God teaches all the way through Scripture. It's all about one thing, and that's about the good news of coming to know Jesus Christ. Do you have your Bibles with you? If you do, now it will be up on the screen when we go to read the text, but if you want to follow along, turn to Luke chapter 15. Just a great, great passage, Luke chapter 15. And so before we begin... Would you do something with me? Would you just either, you could stand or you could bow or do it, whatever you wish to do, but we're just going to commit this time, one more time, uh, to God so that he would bless us through the Holy Spirit. So stand with me if you wish, or just, just stay where you are, it's fine. But let's just stand in his presence, be in his presence. Oh, Father, as we go into the text today, we realize how inadequate we are. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that as an excuse even. I just say it out of reality because we understand, I understand um, just how terribly wicked I am. And that apart from you, we all find ourselves in the horrible state that this young man in our story found himself. But Father, today would you once more either remind us of how we were lost and found, or if we have never, ever been found by you, would you open those hearts and minds and eyes today? Because we do not want this to be an intellectual exercise. 
but rather we want this to be a spiritual exercise in which we all come nearer to you and to feel your hand upon us, welcoming us, embracing us, comforting us, accepting us, changing us, rejoicing over us. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for standing with me. Now, usually when we talk about Luke chapter 15 and the prodigal son, we talk about being lost. But you know, the story is not about being lost. The story is all about being found. That's what it's really all about. So we are going to find out today that all of us fit into this story. Some of us don't want to fit into the story, but we will all fit into the story somewhere, which makes these parables so great. Anybody else out there like C.S. Lewis? Do you know who C.S. Lewis is? Yeah, there's, there's like, you know, a few dozens of you who really just really like C.S. I really like C.S. Lewis. He's written a lot of really great things in terms of deeper things. But what I like the best, confession time, is I like the Chronicles of Narnia. Can I get a witness? I, I mean, those are going to last forever, aren't they? I mean, honestly... They are so good. We listen to them every summer, sometimes three or four or five times, as we're going back and forth to the cottage, and our grandchildren just love to listen to it. And we indulge them because we love it too. In fact, I've already listened to the whole set, and the summer's not even started yet. So I'll probably do that three or four times. So the first illustration comes from the book of... There's seven books, those of you who don't know. And they're all about the gospel, every single one. And the voyage of the Don Treader is kind of special to me because I like sailing. But it introduces us to this character called Eustace Scrubs. Anybody know that name? Eustace sound, kind of sounds like useless. <laughs> He's got play on words there. Scrub, uh, not so good. He's a lost boy. Lost in so many ways. He, he's self-centered. He, he's selfish. He, he indulges himself. He can't think of anything but himself. And he doesn't see reality the way it is. And people have to keep moving around him in order to, to exist because he just gets in the way all the time and he doesn't see it, you see. And so C.S. Lewis introduces him into Narnia, which, of course, is, the, is sort of the pathway into heaven. And uh, so we see that he's in Narnia, but he's still Eustace, the old Eustace. In fact, if anything... His faults show up even more there than they did at home. And here he is. And because of his greed and his self-centeredness, he turns into a what class? A dragon. <laughs> a dragon. And he, 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 just, he turns into a dragon in this land that he's in. And when he realizes it, he begins to think about himself. And he begins to think, will I always be a dragon? And he, he begins to wonder, what was I really like? And he sees himself as a pre-dragon boy that was not very good. And he begins to repent. There's a good word. He begins to turn around. And he begins to think, I don't really want to be this dragon. Now Aslan, who is the Christ figure in the story, comes to him 
And he says to him, if you want to be cleansed of this, there's a pool over here for cleansing, but you need to first of all take off this rough dragon skin that you have. And this rough dragon skin, he begins to use his claws and he takes off as much skin as he can, but he doesn't do a very good job of it. And what happens is that he kind of gives up. And Aslan says, let me take off the dragon skin. And he does. And as he takes off that dragon skin, there's this new boy. And he takes the new boy and he throws him into the cleansing pool and he comes out a transformed person. And it's excellent. But you see, this is a parable, isn't it? And C.S. Lewis uses these stories, like Eustace, as a parable. And in Scripture, we have two different kinds of parables. One is an illustration, and the other is a demonstration. In other words, a real life. And that's what we see here. So C.S. Lewis is very careful to show to us what the gospel really is. But in here, he uses a motif which I want to use today. And you can remember, it's not going to be on the screen. If you're taking notes, just think of the four R's. That's how we remember things. The first R is rebellion. Now, all of us are rebels, amen? I am, I know it. I'll freely admit to it. If I'm not careful, I go astray, and so do you. Our first parents in the Garden of Eden, according to Genesis, were rebellious. Israel was rebellious. The church is rebellious. You're rebellious. I'm rebellious. What are we rebellious about? We're rebelling against God, you see. And most people are actually kind of rebelling against God, and they don't even think about it, but they are. So we have this story of rebellion, which leads to repentance, which leads to redemption, which leads to reconciliation and restoration. That's what we have. Rebellion, redemption, reconciliation, restoration. And we get there through repentance. So parables are illustrations of deeper truths. Now, Jesus always put these into context. So there's a context here in the prodigal son. Now, the prodigal son is just one story of three now, if you're studying this text on your own, please don't separate the three stories. So even though I said we're going to talk about the prodigal son, we can't understand that story without looking at the first two, which we'll do in just a few moments. But Jesus wants to make sure that we get this right. And so he has a series of stories only recorded in Luke to show us really what the gospel is. And he teaches us the truth about who God is, who we are, and how we can come to him. Are you ready? Now, in many ways, you might think of the whole story of Jesus' life on earth as a demonstration parable of God's grace and love. But here, wonderfully written, is actually the gospel that Jesus came to preach. So first of all, as we study this, let's look at the context of why Jesus actually even bothers to give us these stories. Because Jesus didn't go around willy-nilly having ten different parables, throwing them out all over the place. What he did was he fitted the parable to the needs of the people. And so he looked at the context in which he was himself ministering in the gospel. 
So let's look at that together. Luke chapter 15. It'll be up on the screen. First couple of verses. I'm reading from NIV, but let me read it for you. Now the tax collector. Any tax collectors here? Somehow, if you're working for the CRA, you're in big trouble in the Bible. You know that? Because every time you think about sinners, they match sinners and tax collectors in the same basket, as it were. But tax collectors and sinners were all gathering to hear him. Now, him is Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Now, I want to stop you at this point because if you are a Bible student, or if you've been a Christian for a while and you know these stories, you might automatically think Pharisees bad, Jesus is good. Don't be so fast to do that. Because, you see, that's called judgmentalism. We're judging them, you see. But you need to ask the question, why are two things happening here? Number one, why do people go to Jesus and they don't go to the Pharisees? That's the first question. second question is, why are the Pharisees so grumbling about Jesus? Because isn't Jesus just like the best thing ever? I mean, he feeds the people, he heals the people, he does all these wonderful things. Why are they so always ticked off about Jesus? And everywhere you go, they are. We see, we learn something here about ourselves. Because the reason why the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were so anxious about the way that Jesus operated was, you see, they had over 600 rules on how to be holy. 643, actually, to be holy so that they would not lose their salvation, as it were. And so they had to be constantly careful about what they did, what they ate, who they touched, who they spoke to, what they did on a certain day. They had all of these different things going on for fear, now here's the word, that they would be contaminated. See, they were open to contamination, and they felt contamination kept you from entering into the presence of God. If you were contaminated and happened to die, you're lost. Now, that's a pretty heavy burden to carry on your shoulders. But you see, Jesus, what did he do? He ate and drank with sinners. He touched people who were lepers. He he touched dead people. He He broke every single one of these laws. And they just couldn't get it. How come Jesus does this? Well, the truth of the matter is, They didn't quite see it. But the truth is that Jesus could not be contaminated. He's God. So he gives this series of parables to teach two things. You ready for this? Number one, he wants to instruct those Pharisees and the teachers of the law that God is there for them as well. And not to be judgmental. And not to be so serious about their religion, they got all these rules going on, but rather to enter into the joy of the salvation that God has for them. Now, if you're here today and you are a rank, judgmental person, you're in trouble. Because Jesus calls us out every time when we're really judgmental to people. And when we set up a series of religions that actually keep people from coming into the kingdom. Because Jesus went to them and he touched them. Now, that's very important. 
So, but the second thing, and probably the most important thing, is to demonstrate in this story that God's love and mercy and grace was for everybody. And that God is waiting for us. And more than that, he's actually looking for us. And so I said, it's not really about being lost. This story presupposes that you and I come into this world as lost people. We actually come in rebellious people. We just work it out in different ways. But at the same time, God is telling us that he's calling us, you see. His voice is calling us. He's nudging us. So we see that there are three things that are found. The first is a sheep. The second is a coin. And the third are a couple boys. And so we want to look at that first. Let's look at at chapter 15, verses 3 to 10. Are you with me? These two stories, the first and the second, the coin and the sheep, go together. They are one thing. They are one thing. Let's look at them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home and then he calls his friends and neighbors and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And I tell you that in the same way there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine Righteous people who do not need to repent. He's not saying that if you're a righteous person and in Christ he's not interested in you. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that we and him must be really dedicated to look for those people who are lost. Then he goes on in verse 8. Or suppose, and in Greek it's just a simple word called and or also, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins, and she loses them, one of them, you see. It's very precious to her. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, what do I have in my hand? I have... I have a coin in my hand, and if I take this coin, hopefully I don't drop it, and I flip it, what do you want to do? You want to call out something, right? What do you want to call out? Heads. Who wants to call out tails? What does? I almost dropped it. It doesn't matter. It's one coin, is it not? And yet, honestly, when we begin to look at theology when we begin to think of the truths that Jesus taught in scriptures, theologians, and I'm a minor theologian, I know what it's like, we tend to look at truth like this coin, and we see as two sides, and we choose one side over another. See, that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees chose what they thought was heads (laughs) over the tails. And Jesus said, a coin has two sides. And you need to understand both sides in order to understand how God finds us, saves us, reconciles us, and then rejoices over us. You see, that's what Jesus is saying. So we have a coin with two sides, and the first side is illustrated in the first two stories. 
A simple lost sheep, very simple coin. Now, it's interesting. We don't understand why these things are lost. Now, the one is just a simple little sheep, and it probably just strayed away. And I think a lot of people just stray away. Can we use that as part of the parable teaching? I think they just stray away. And they need someone to find them. I remember growing up in a Sunday school, which I did. And I remember there on the wall, I never understood it, but there was a, a great picture. I used to watch it all the time instead of listening to what was going on. And, and that beautiful picture had a mountainside, and there was a sheep caught in, caught in a thorn bush or something. And a shepherd was going down in a precarious position. And, 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 and his own safety was at stake. And he reaches down and he grabs this little sheep and he pulls it up. I used to think that's a wonderful story. It is a great story. Now, from the very beginning of the church world, what we call the early church fathers, they saw in this story of the shepherd, who did they see? They saw Jesus. Of course they did. They saw Jesus because he is the good shepherd. And he says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. The second story of the coin is interesting because the coin does nothing to lose itself. Can I get a witness to that? But the coin is lost because of what? It's being misplaced. It's just dropped somewhere. It doesn't decide to do anything. It doesn't have legs and arms and eyes and brain. It doesn't even wander away. It just gets lost. I think there's an awful lot of people in the world who just have never had a chance. They're just lost. They didn't decide to. They didn't want to. But they need to be found. But what Jesus is illustrating here, he said, it's the searching that's important. So this lady gets like a huge lamp, and she clears away everything, and she gets into the dark corners, you see. And the early church father said, this is the Holy Spirit. And I say, amen, it is. So Jesus, God the Son, dies on the cross for us, the good shepherd. But you see, the Holy Spirit, the fulgent light of God, the radiant light of God, you know what he does? He shines right into your heart. And he shines into my heart, as he did when I was 17. And he shows up all those dark places And he puts his light in there and says, this is what you're really like. And we say, God, I don't want to be here anymore. That takes us to the next story. But this is the work of God. Now it's interesting. We are all lost in certain ways. Some through neglect, like the coin. Some through just wandering away. But then Jesus, you see, flips the coin over and he shows us a little bit more about ourselves and about God. And this is the story of the prodigal son. Look at it with me. This is the human side. This is the human side. Before we read it, let me just say this. If we only had one half of the coin, and theologians do this, they'll say this. We don't have to do anything We just have to wait until God finds us, and then he saves us. Sometimes we call that election. But that's not what Jesus is teaching here. 
Yes, he is teaching that God looks for us, and he finds us, and praise God for that, we can't save ourselves. But he's also giving the human side of this, that we must do something. Not to save ourselves, but to move towards God. That's what he's saying. Now, there's a, can we have a, a picture of, yeah, let's read the text, sorry, and then we'll have the picture come up. Verse 11, Jesus continues, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. But not long after, the younger son got all together what he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered, underline that word, he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, if you know anything about Jews, they have nothing to do with pigs. Here he is, far from home, taking care of pigs. But it gets worse. He longs to fill his own stomach with the food, the pods that the pigs are eating, but no one gave him anything. It sounds like he couldn't even eat the pig's food. And there he is. He's way down there. And then he comes to his senses, and he says, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, and I will go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now note this. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up, and he went to his father. And while he was yet still a long way off, his father, who obviously was waiting for him, saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son and threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But you see, that's as far as he gets. Verse 22, But the father said to his servants, and in Greek it's like, Quick, all of a sudden, right, quick, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead, is alive again. He was lost and was found. So they began to celebrate. And then verse 25, And meanwhile the older brother was in the field, and when he came to the, near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So he called one of the servants, and he asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he said. Your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and he pleaded with this older son. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And I've never disobeyed one of your laws. You see who they are here, Pharisees. Never disobeyed a law, God. Never disobeyed you, Father. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered all your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. is lost, but now he's found. It was a Sunday school class, and the teacher was teaching this. And, and she said, uh, who was not happy that the prodigal son came home? 
A little girl thought for a while. She said, the fatted calf. <laughs> Why, he wasn't happy for sure. But I tell you, this older son was also not happy. So here we have these characters. Can we get the picture up there now, please? Let's just look at this very carefully. We see, can you see that? Not very well, can you? Anybody recognize this? It's a painting that's hanging, I think it's still hanging in the Hermitage in Moscow, uh, in Russia. And this is Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. You can't see it real well, but what you can see is very important. You see the father, you see the son, you see his hands on him, you see the condition of their faces, but in the background, in the darkness, you see these other faces, you see. And you'll notice that those hands are not reaching out, they're not touching, they're folded and grasped like this. Now, these characters is where we find ourselves. We're either that loving, embracing God figure, like God is embracing sinners who come, or we are the son who needs to come home to the father and say, Father, forgive me. Or maybe some of us are like the older brother, like the Pharisees, who sort of say, hmm, not sure about this guy. That's a real problem. So here we see these folks. When they come to the father and say, Father, we, we, we want the money, you only hear the younger son's voice, but the older son is probably going, hey, this is a good idea. Because you see, according to law, and Jewish law said this, a father could give his estate to his sons on the condition that, A, the older son receives two-thirds of the estate, and the younger or all of the other youngers have to divide what's left of the estate, which is one-third. And the young boy is so tired of living under the rules of his father's house that he says, give it to me and I'm gone. And the older one's thinking, I'm going to have the other two-thirds. But you see, there's another law in the Hebrew culture that says this. If you receive your estate from your father and he blesses you with this and you live on the estate like the older one did, then you must take care of your father until he dies. You get the picture? So the older son is with the father all the time taking care of the estate. The younger one takes it in cash and he's gone. Now, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't really describe how the younger son got there, nor even the entire journey that he took. But rather, and don't miss this, so important, Jesus emphasizes the cost, you see? And he emphasizes the cost not just to the younger son, but also to the older son. Now, the younger son... We get that. We, we, we get that. Don't you just get that? Dad, I'm tired of you. Give me the money. I'm gone. You'll never see me again. I'm just going to live my life freedom. And Jesus explains the cost of turning our backs against God. And it's a downhill slope. And this illustration is like one extreme, isn't it? We may even think of some people like this. And we may be tempted to think, you know, I've never been that bad. 
But you see, there's another extreme here too, and that's the older son. The older son kept all the rules. The older son kept all the estate. The older son had all the blessings, and yet he held on to these like a miser, and he held on to them like a slave. You see, the younger son didn't want to be a slave of the father, so he runs away to become a slave of something far worse. But the older son felt like a slave in his own house because he was trying to keep his father happy by what he did. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. So you see, we are all, all of us in this room are living on this line or this curve between the younger son and this older son. Do you get what I'm saying? You're on this curve somewhere. You may not be on the extremes, but somewhere in there, there's a picture of me and a picture of you. And there's the father who's waiting for us. You see, we we condemn the younger son because of the abuse that he made of his father's estate. By the way, his father didn't lose all that much, so he doesn't lose that much, but... But the son lost everything, you see. The older son gained everything, but he lost it as well. How? By misusing what he had. Imagine what he says. You've never even given me one goat. And what, what does the father say? The father says, listen, son, I've like given you everything. You've got like a hundred goats. Any day of the week, you could have had a party with your friends. It's all yours anyway. Everything I have is yours. What happened to these two boys? They had a relationship rebellion with their father. Now, this is where it gets serious. Because where are we in our rebellion against God? Where are we? We need to come to him. Rebellion in the case of the younger son led to repentance. But you see, when he first repented, he so much was like I am and you are. See what he does? He says, I think I can fix this problem. I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say, listen, I really blew this and I've sinned against heaven and against you. But he has a whole other line. Do you see it? And he says this, Make me like one of your hired servants. Because he wants food, he wants shelter, he wants all these blessings back. But he realizes that he has blown it as far as being a son, but he wants to be the son, but treated like a slave. He's got it all mixed up. But that's the repentance process. And this is what we give to God. If you think about what do I have to give to God today, how about giving him your sin? How about doing that? How about just saying, God, would you take away my sin, my rebellion, my heart, my callousness, my judgmental spirit, my rebellious nature? Would you just take that away from me, please? And so he comes. He tries to figure out a way in which he can compromise with God. But this is another great lesson here that God doesn't compromise with us. Can I get a witness on that one? He never compromises with us. So the young son rushes up. Maybe he goes slowly. But the father rushes to him, and he puts his hands on him, just like you see. And the young son begins to talk. Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. And he's right ready to give his, but i got a way to figure this out. 
right? I got a way of figuring this out. You just treat me like this, and I'll do this, and I'll do We always have our plans to give to God to fix it. And don't do that. Is it interesting in the story that Jesus taught here that he gives us a glimpse into what the mind working was of this young man, but when he actually gets to the father, he only gets out the part that's important. Father, I've sinned against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. If you ever wondered what repentance was, that's it right there. We don't come to God with a list of things that we're going to do for him so he'll take us in. That's not repentance. Repentance is, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Great spiritual truth. You ready for this? Every single person that's ever lived on the face of this earth has a relationship with God because we're made in his image. And it's either a reconciled relationship or it's a relationship that's away from the Father. And that's illustrated in this story as well. The older brother had everything. And yet he wasted it. He wasted it. You know, the story, interesting, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't tell us what happened to the older brother. And if you listen to commentaries, they're going to tell you everything about what the older brother did and said, no, no, it's not that way at all. Doesn't tell us. And the reason is this. The love of the father extended to both sons, just like it does to us. And the story is as real today as it was 2,000 years ago. This past week, I got an email from a young girl in Midwest states, Nebraska. Is that Midwest in the states? And she got a hold of me on a website, and she told me her story. And here's her story. She grew up in a Christian home. She rebelled against it. She went off to university to study science, and she was working on her master's degree in anthropology. So she's a bright person. And she said, May of this year, in May of this year, certain things began to happen, and I, I felt God nudging me and talking to me. And so I, I went home, and I went to see my mom, who I knew was a great Christian. So I said to her, what do I do? And she said, come with me to these special meetings. And I don't know what the meetings were, but she went to these meetings, and she said, because I went there, I gave my heart to God, and I was baptized that very same night. She said, I'm a new person. And she began to list some people that she wanted me to pray for. See, that's what happens when we really repent and are restored and reconciled and rejoiced over us. We want to have everybody share that. It's not a story 2,000 years ago. It's our story. It's your story. It's my story. And it's God's story for us. Where are you on that line? Is God speaking to you today? If he is, get up. In your heart, come back to him. Don't harden your heart. Don't set up rules for God. It doesn't work. Don't set up rules for yourself. It doesn't work. But come and bow down before him in your heart. He will embrace you because he loves you. And he has a wonderful story 
for you to hear. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we just thank you so much that you loved us, that you've kept us. And Lord, I I just thank you for the day that I literally walked down that aisle. I literally did. And Father, you have poured your blessing upon us. Father, deal with every heart. Deal with every life. Because today, we want to rejoice. Not over just our own salvation, but when other people come as well. So that we might be part of the chorus of the angels in heaven who rejoice over one person who repents. For we ask us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.